Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with shop owners versus shoplifters. Yes, tis the season to shoplift. Seems to be getting worse out there, too. I speak to store owners all the time who deal with this stuff every single day. People stealing from this store all the time. Now shop owners are fed up with it, and some of them are taking steps to put an end to it, including my first guest, Chris Dancy. Chris is the owner of the Bone and Biscuit Pet Food Shop in Victoria. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Chris, thanks a lot for coming on today. Certainly. Thank you. You bet, Chris. Chris, it's a very nice store you have. I've been in there myself. Um, tell me a little bit about your store. How long have you been in operation there in Victoria? Uh, we've been operating just over six years. Yeah, okay. So tell me about the problems with shoplifting, and, and, and in particular, you had one repeat shoplifter that was coming into the store, right? When did all this start? Uh, certainly. Um, definitely, we do have problems with shoplifting, but this person seems to be the most habitual. Um, she started coming in in March, and she has been in at least, Six times, um, and at least successful five of those times in shoplifting. How do you know she was successful? Uh, my video footage. <laughs> okay, okay. Mm-hmm. So you've got surveillance video in there, and you can see her. Like, what kind of stuff was she stealing? Um, on two of the occasions, it was several bags of treats. On another occasion, it was a pet rain jacket. Oh, those can be pricey. They can be, yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so how many t- so how many times do you figure she got away with this? What did you say? Four or five times? Right? At, at least five. Five times. Okay. Yes. So so you must have known. So when you would see this woman coming into the store, did you say anything to her? Um, so the only time she wasn't successful was the time that I recognized her, um, yeah. and I stood beside her the whole time she was in the shop until she got frustrated and left. Yeah. Um, and, you know, after the last occurrence when it was a five-second run-in and grab a product and run out of the store, that's when I decided to put her picture back up on the store wall. Okay, so this is where you took some direct action. So tell me about that, Chris. What exactly did you do here? Um, well, I basically took an image from one of the videos that we had of her and put it on the front door and basically had a little sign there that said, you know, we're, we're a small business and stop, stop stealing from us. <laughs> That's a pretty direct message there, yeah. Yes. Stop stealing from our store. Okay, so did she, uh, did she see that? Did she come back to the store and see your photo up there? Yes, from one of my staff. She had come back about five days ago uh, with a companion. Uh, the companion saw her photo on the door, pointed at it, and she took the companion and walked off. Oh, okay. So you think you figured this worked then? At least once, yes. Once, okay. Has she been back since? <laughs> no, we haven't seen her since then. Okay. How much, how much uh, what do you think was the total value of the stuff that she took all those times? Uh, figure? Yeah, I think we're verging over $500. 500 bucks. okay. But maybe this is going to put an end to it. Okay, so you, what do your customers think of that? When your customers come in and they see this photo, what is, what's been your customers' reaction? Most of it's been disbelief that somebody would come into a shop like mine and continue to shoplift over and over again. Yeah. Um, and then taking the steps that, great, maybe, you, know, you know, maybe she won't come back if her picture's on the door. 
Right. So your customers were supportive. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Would you, how would you describe what this is? Is this like, I've heard this described as shaming the shoplifters. You put their photo up in the store. If you've got like a chronic repeat shoplifter, you shame them, put their photo up and let everyone see their photo. Is that how you would characterize it? That's not my intent. Um, My intent is just to deter her from coming in the shop. Yeah. And it worked. It worked. Yeah. Okay. What about the police? Have you tried phoning the police? I I have had contact with the police, and I have uh, had conversations with police officers who are customers. Um, And they kind of direct me as to the limitations that we have when dealing with a shoplifter, which is basically you can't really do a lot. Um, You can ask the person to leave, and you can ask the person to give back the product, but they can decline, and there's not much you can do about it. Really? Okay. Can you ban people from the store? Can you say, like, you're not allowed in here anymore? Yes. Um, okay. So, as it was explained to me, even though I am in a public mall, because I leased this space, it's considered private. Um, so, I can certainly tell a known shoplifter that I've seen do it that uh, yeah. they're not allowed in the store. And if they don't leave, I then can call the police for trespassing. Uh, speaking of Chris Dancy, Chris is the owner of the Bone and Biscuit Pet Food Store in Victoria, and his problem with a repeat shoplifter there in the store. Hey, Chris, like you're not the only store owner who has taken this approach. Uh, all there's a Canadian Tire story we've learned in Victoria, very similar issue. They started posting photos of known shoplifters, repeat shoplifters who've come into that store, so everyone can see the photo. Do you think it, do you think this could start catching on in other stores? It possibly could. I, I'm sure there is a liability issue with some some businesses. What do you think the liability issue would be? Uh, I would, I guess, defamation if if they're incorrect about the person. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to wrongly accuse somebody. Exactly. Yeah, but you figure you had this person pretty much red-handed, though. Yes, I have at least three videos. Okay, so you knew you had the right person, and it seems to be working. How much is there uh, much other stuff being stolen from your store, or was she doing most of it, or you got other Uh, other shoplifters? There certainly has been sporadic um, shoplifting, um, but it tends to be opportunistic, one-off shoplifters. And the only reason I got really concerned about this is because she was habitual. Yeah. Chris, thank you for sharing the story today. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Oh, it's the old five-finger discount here. There's a lot of shoplifting going on. Some shop owners are fed up. You heard my discussion there with Chris Dancy. He owns a pet food store. He had one particularly prolific shoplifter put her picture up on the front door, and uh, she hasn't been back since. The Canadian Tire Store in Victoria also doing the same thing. Lots of calls coming in. Let's check in with Rui Rodriguez, Retail Council of Canada. Rui's an expert on shoplifting and loss prevention there. He's an advisor there at the Retail Council. Rui, thanks for coming on again. My pleasure, Mike. Hey, what do you think of stores taking direct action like that, putting up photos of known shoplifters? Uh, Well, you know, Mike, I can comment on an opinion. I I would say, uh, I think Chris alluded to, there are some risks. Yeah. Um, a photo has been determined to be private, personal, identifiable information, so PII, which is subject to privacy laws. 
Uh, and in, in general, uh, a key is a requirement of the law is consent uh, by the person who is on the photo, which obviously is hard to get from a criminal. Uh, so I would state from an opinion is if you're doing that, there are always elements of risk uh, to the person who's putting up that photo. So I would always advise somebody to consult either with their own legal, reach out to the Privacy Office of Canada uh, to look at you know, what, can, what applies, what doesn't, uh, and make sure they protect themselves. Okay, well, I think that's some really good advice. So could that technically, therefore, be illegal? Like, even if you know someone, you've got evidence they've been shoplifting from your store, you put their photo up on the wall, you're you're potentially breaking the law yourself by doing that? Yeah, in general, I would say that putting up any photo because it is PII without the consent of the individual, the photo is not allowed and it's subject to those privacy laws. So anyone doing that would be subject to an investigation of that and potential penalties if found to be in the wrong and those penalties can be quite large and we're talking hundred thousand dollars wow. uh, again i would just i would just ask that they consult to make sure that what they're doing falls within the guidelines of the privacy laws uh, and out and not outside of them how bad is shoplifting right now in, in our country uh, you know what? It's interesting, Mike. I, I started to use that word less and, and really call it what it is, which is theft. Yeah, right. I think shoplifting really has gotten this connotation that there, there isn't any victim. Uh, and what we've seen in Canada over the last year is an escalation in prolific offenses, violent offenses. Uh, and there are clear victims. It's people who are getting hurt during the commission of a retail theft. There's also assaults. Uh, there's mischievous activity, so it's falling into other indictable offenses. Uh, but when we term it shoplifting, it's always perceived as a property crime and there's no victim. There's also a lot of victims, uh, you know, small, mid-sized organizations who may not have uh, the margins or the profit uh, dollars of a, a large organization right. uh, that get impacted. Uh, and, sure. you know, $10,000 to a small business in a year can be a difference between what they take home at, at the end of the year or not. So it is an impact to the business as well. So it's not shoplifting, unfortunately, is not a, a victimless crime. It's either yeah. small business, mid-businesses, and large business that are being impacted, uh, as well as employees that we see more and more uh, frontline employers and managers are dealing with the escalated violence. Uh, and, you know, a retail sh- worker making minimum wage didn't sign up to be victimized. Right. I think there's some great points. Let's take a few calls here. Steve on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. Yeah. Hi, Mike. You know, um, my dad owned a popular drugstore um, in the 60s and 70s. And in the early 70s, this is before credit cards, better clients would have accounts in a store. And what would happen is when they bounced checks, frequently my dad then would put their checks in and, and uh, take them to the window so everybody could see. Now, what people don't realize is when people are stealing from stores, they're stealing. It's no different than somebody stealing somebody's money. It's money out of their pocket. And it really, you look at it, shoplifters are, they're they're parasites. They're living off the veils of others. And I remember what my dad did. This is in Vancouver. We went to the guy. He took me once to this prolific um, check bouncer. We went to his house. And he took mm. me in, he, my da- I was with my dad, and he was giving me a tour of his house in Shaughnessy, and, and you know, he's bragging about he has this beautiful house. And my dad says, then why don't you just pay your $150 check? <laughs> you know, this has been going forever. Did the guy pay and, up? And, this, and, this is, and one, one thing, this, yeah. this, this is a victim's crime. Cause when, I remember even when kids would 
steal from my dad's drugstore. I mean, that was stealing our money. I, it, I, 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 quite frank, I remember when my dad sold the store eventually for a bigger venture. Um, I wasn't disappointed because I couldn't stand people stealing. It was terrible. Wow. Okay, Steve, thank you for sharing that story. Yeah, it's been going on for a long time. Ken in Chilliwack. Hi, Ken. Go ahead. Good morning, Mike. Uh, just the other night, I was at a Chopper's Drug Mart here in Chilliwack, and uh, there was a shoplifter, and I guess he'd been in there before because the clerk knew him, and he uh, grabbed something and took off. She grabbed him, and she was trying to restrain him, and I had no choice. I felt I had to get involved, and oh. I went after him as well. Well, I'm 67 years old. I shouldn't be tackling young guys potentially armed. Somebody's going to get hurt if this isn't uh, brought under control. So, okay, so you intervened there. What happened? Did the police show up and arrest the guy? No, he got out the door oh. and he was gone. And then oh. the clerk said, there's no point in calling the police. They won't do anything anyways. Okay, Ken, thank you for sharing that. Rui, what do you think of that? Like, should should people who work in a store intervene and, and retain, uh, detain a shoplifter? That could be kind of dangerous, potentially. So, Mike, I can't advise the people what they should do. What I would say is, you know, people's safety is paramount. There are yeah. people that are trained to do that. We've seen a, a, quite an increase in the use of third-party security guard companies by businesses, whether it's retailers, hotels, uh, restaurants, uh, to protect their staff and their customers. So the, the level of use of security guard has certainly uh, gone up significantly in the last year because, uh, you know, you have frontline workers are not trained to do this. As the gentleman just said, we have members of the public that see it happening and want to be good Samaritans and jump in. Yeah. Uh, and you have no idea what you're walking into, whether somebody has, as you said, has a weapon, uh, has some other issues they're dealing with, maybe intoxicated and the situation escalates. So, you know, I, I would always caution folks that think of your safety, your customer safeties and other employee safety uh, retailers do invest in their loss prevention departments and third-party guards to train people okay. and put people in place to make sure that they are more well-equipped to deal with those escalations when they happen. Thank you, Rui, for coming on today. My pleasure. All right. Here we go with our home equity tax debate. Now, we know we have an affordability crisis in real estate in this city, in this region. I really feel for young people who are trying to break into this housing market, seems unaffordable to a great degree for non-millionaires. So how about this idea? If you own a home in the city, especially if you bought the place before prices went crazy, well, you won the life lottery. You're sitting on a million dollars or more in equity. So why not put a tax on that home, use the money to build affordable housing? Is that the solution? Now, we've talked about this on the show in the past. We've got a great panel standing by here to discuss. Have a listen to this here now. Here is Paul Kershaw on an earlier show. He has been promoting this idea of a home equity tax. Listen to his take here. That's like a large pot of gold. That isn't a nest egg. That is a wealth windfall. You know, if I'd accumulated that half a million dollars over 10, 15 years of work, then great is my savings. But this is only, this is happening in our housing system and we're tolerating it. And we are, we're saying, oh, that housing, that person who's nest egg now just grew and grew and grew and they're counting on it and that that should be somehow not open for any further conversation. So he says that is not a nest egg. That is a wealth 
windfall. We should tax it. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Tom Davidoff. Tom is the director at the UBC Center for Urban Economics and Real Estate. Hi, Tom. Hey, thanks for having me. You bet. Thanks for coming on. Paul Sullivan on the line. Paul is a principal in Ryan. It's a global tax service and tax service provider. He is a real estate analyst. Hey, Paul. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Tom. Thank you, gentlemen, to both of you. Tom Davidoff, let me go to you first. You agree with this idea, right? There should be a tax on on, uh, equity, especially high-end, expensive homes. I think as a political matter, uh, you have to be pretty careful in taxing property. Uh, What I have proposed is to ensure that anybody who owns property in British Columbia pays a total tax bill in line with what they own. So that could come through a combination of income and property taxes. What I've discussed is the very large number of people who own very expensive homes and pay minimal income tax to Canada. And I think it's appropriate to have a sort of minimum tax but most, uh, you know, people who live and work here would not be subject to that. I think imposing a broad-based home equity tax, you know, might be good economics, uh, it, depending on how it's structured. Uh, but you have to be careful with the politics. Okay, so on the system that you have in mind, Tom, like how much would people pay? Like, let's say you own a home that's worth, I don't know, a million, a one point five million, which is not. Yeah. Not uh, rare yeah, in 1. the city. 5, yes, yeah, not, no. So $1.5 million, you'd be on the hook for what we proposed would be 1% of that, $15,000 in income tax if you're a working age. Of course, seniors have to be exempted. But, you know, uh, if you look at the average household uh, that owns a home worth, say, $3.5 million plus, turns out they're only paying about $15,800 Uh, in income tax. That's not retirees who bought the home a long time ago. In fact, that situation where people are paying income taxes on incomes of less than 100,000, somehow uh, buying $3.5 million homes, that's concentrated among recent buyers. So this is not, you know, working hard at low income. This is, you know, highly wealthy people not paying taxes in Canada. Okay. Okay. Paul Sullivan, what do you think of this idea? Uh, I just think it's completely unreasonable. I mean, what about the people that just bought a house last week for $3.5 million? They didn't win the lottery. They got a massive mortgage they're buried in. You know, you want your average Dunbar family that has a $3.5 million home to pay $35,000 in property tax? I got to make $80,000 in income to cover that property tax bill after all the income taxes we pay. So it's, it's way offside. I think British Columbians have had it with new taxation and uh, it's time to come up with some better ideas. Tom Davidoff, what do you say to that? Right. So uh, Paul was mentioning people who just took out a, a giant mortgage. So if you buy a $3.5 million house to qualify for the mortgage, you know, your income has to be about something like a quarter of uh, the value. So on a $4 million house, that's a million dollar income. Obviously, you're paying an awful lot more than $35,000 a year in income tax. Uh, this is extremely high net worth people who buy $4 million homes but can't qualify for a mortgage. Uh, so, you know, this is not, uh, you know, somebody who's scrimped and scraped, you know, uh, making 50K a year. Yeah. That's just uh, a misrepresentation, a, I think, of reality. What about a senior who owns a home, they paid it off a long time ago, worked all their lives, and yeah, they might not have a lot of income right now if they're on a fixed income but they're yeah. sitting on a, a home that's valued at 2 million bucks or something. Are you saying that they should pay, they should be taxed? 
No, no as I mentioned, I, okay. I don't think you can do. I don't think you can do. I think you have to exempt seniors. I, you know, I think there's a reasonable case that sometime before death, uh, large home equity gains over a lifetime ought to be taxed prior to going to the estate. You know, the kids who kids didn't earn it, but that's controversial. I think. I think realistically, uh, you're going to have to exempt seniors. Okay, Paul Sullivan, what do you think of that? Uh, I mean, listen, we we're, 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 we don't have a problem with new taxes. We've got tons of them. What we've got a problem here is with affordable housing. We're talking to the Sauter School of Business. Let's talk about the business side of this problem. What have, what have we got in the bag to, to support business? What incentive programs has Sauter come up with to get homes built? Why don't we provide tax incentives and create some housing out of it? I haven't heard any of that out of Sauter. So I'm kind of questioning why... Everything we're hearing is about new taxation on homeowners and why this university and this government thinks that homeowners should solve a housing crisis. It's outrageous. Tom Davidoff. Yeah, no, I don't think Paul's been listening to what at least this professor from Sauter has been saying for quite a long time. I think we have a very funny combination of taxes and regulations in British Columbia. Our taxes and regulation in combination say don't build new housing. That's the regulatory side with which I strongly disagree. And our tax policy says, you know, we're not going to tax you if you buy property, uh, but we're really going to hit you uh, on earned income and on sales taxes. So what that does is creates an economy with a disincentive to work and uh, buy stuff and sell stuff, uh, but an incentive to buy property. And then you don't allow people to build property. So that's just not a sensible system. I absolutely think we need to encourage more supply, mostly through deregulation uh, and uh, elimination of excessively strict zoning. Uh, but, uh, yeah. you know, as long as you've got strict regulations, you ought to be taxing property more and income and sales less. Hey, Tom, what do you think about that clip we played earlier there of, of Paul Kershaw? I'm sure you know him. And you know, where he, he characterizes someone who's sitting on a mountain of home equity wealth. He's saying that's not a nest egg. He's that's a that's a wealth windfall. You've basically like hit the lottery if you're sitting on a home worth two million bucks and you've got it more or less paid off. Do you agree with them on that? That's a that's like a lottery win or a wealth windfall that should be taxed? Well, what I would say is I would give Paul Kershaw credit for opening the Overton window on uh, general discussion of tax reform as for whether i would try to you know make the effort <laughs> or encourage a government to make the effort uh to convince government for a a broad-based home equity tax i don't think that would be the first step i would take i think i would go for lower hanging fruit like people who just bought a four million dollar house and are somehow only paying fifteen thousand dollars a year in taxes what what are you suggesting there? Is like there are people out there who are buying houses, who I don't know, d apparently don't have any means of wealth. So what they're they're coming from dubious sources. This money, not necessarily what? dubious sources, right? It could be you had rich parents who who bought you a house. So you're a, a young kid who's lucky enough to have affluent parents who buy you a four million dollar house, but you don't make any money. That could be a scenario. Huh. Uh, you could be from overseas and have made a lot of money overseas but never paid tax in Canada. That doesn't make you a bad person, either of those things. I don't think being from making your money overseas makes you bad, and I don't think having affluent parents makes you a bad person. But as a matter of a tax system that's both equitable and uh, generates an uh, efficient economy, that's probably uh, one of the first places you should be looking for taxes, not the last. Paul Sullivan, what do you say to that? 
Well, I'm going to say it again. British Columbians are tired of, tired of taxation on homeowners. And, uh, you know, what do you say to the guy that just bought a house in Dunbar with his family for $3.5 million? He's down 20%. He's lost $700,000 in the past six months. Are we going to rebate yeah. well, what do you, tax or do we just want to... Well, what do you think that guy... But, but, Paul, what do you think that guy pays a year in income tax who just bought a $4 matter, million dollar house? This is, this is after-tax equity that people have spent their lifetime saving to buy a house, and you guys want to just keep dipping into homeowners' pockets. We're done with it. You know, 35% of the cost of a new home right now is taxation and charges from government. I mean, this golden goose has been plucked. It's time to come up with some other ideas from, from intellects like yourself about how we stimulate an economy, how we stimulate housing growth, and not asking homeowners to pay the bill all the time. We're done. Well, you you say we're done, Paul. Paul, you say we're done. I think if you ask most people, should somebody who's got the means to pay a four million, buy a $4 million house, not, not a long time ago, but today, should that person be paying $15,800 a year in income tax? I think most people would say no. You say people are done. Uh, Okay. Well, here's the point. If you're talking about an input tax credit, if you actually have an offshore owner that's paying that kind of level of income and using the services of our province, I'm with you on that. But you're creating so many unintended consequences with saying 1% across the board for all properties at a million dollars. It's reckless. You, you need to put the full story on the table. And I really do respect what you have said in the past about having tax credit for people that pay income tax. But one percent across the board is, is is not something that is in line with Canadian values. Okay, Tom, well, I know well, you want. I, 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 okay, just 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 want to. Go ahead. I think we agree yeah. that with a tax credit, it's okay. I mean, I, you know, I hope. I, I agree there needs to be a tax credit. I think there are people uh, like Paul Kershaw who would say no credit. Uh, I think, mm. as a matter of at least political reality, there does have to be a credit. Right. It's our home equity tax debate. Tom Davidoff, Paul Sullivan, and lots of your calls here. Rod in New West. Hi, Rod. Go ahead. Hey, Mike. Uh, sorry. I'm just sitting here shaking my head listening to you guys thinking, you know, what about us poor people who have bought in our house 15, 20, 10, 15, 20 years ago, fighting to pay our mortgage? The value of the house has gone up. Sure. My income hasn't gone up. How am I going to pay more tax? Um, what do you say to him? If he bought 15 or 20 years ago, my best guess is uh, he's paying 1% of his property value in income tax currently. Uh, if not, you know, another way you could go would be to have the basis be what you bought the house for. And, I'm, and unless uh, the call is retired, I'm, I'm pretty confident he's paying 1% of the initial purchase price. Okay, Paul, what do you say? Like, you know, you hear this all the time. Like, I scrimped and saved and sacrificed to buy this house. This house. It's not my fault. It's gone up in value. Paul, your thoughts? Well, well, well you're quite right. And, and, and people I know that live in Vancouver are, are, are just covered in debt. Uh, they're having a hard mm-hmm. time, you know, making it through the day. But I, I think, in fairness to Tom, we've heard a bit of clarity today, which is this is, uh, if you pay income tax, you don't pay this tax. And, and that's, that's something I can kind of get my head around, but it's certainly not the message coming out of Paul Kershaw and other academics where they just want a 1% more tax. So we got to get a clear message here because um, what, what, what I hear <clears throat> is tax gouge. Paul in South Surrey. Hi, Paul. Go ahead. Uh, thank you. I, I find it fascinating that the people of B.C. can even, even contemplate this thought. They've been so abused by their by their political powers 
that this is even a conversation. It's amazing that the government comes in with a, a land assessment, so they increase your your property values, then they steal your income by income tax and property tax by it. It's a completely corrupt system, and you're going to extract money from homeowners, and then the government's going to create public housing. They're going to look after public housing. Like it, Tom, it Tom, no what do you sense to me? Tom, what do you say to them? Well, look, I mean, I think some people believe the existence of a government that spends taxpayers' money is theft right off the bat. And uh, we should live in a world without teachers, without police, without uh, taking care of people who sleep on the street. And, uh, you know, we should leave the rest to private charity and private schools. And that's an attitude one can have. I think, you know, how much we should spend on government is one question. The other question is holding how much taxes we uh, raise constant. Should we be raising taxes from property? Should we be taxing uh, income or should we be taxing sales? That's what I think is the interesting question. Uh, I think, uh, you know, that's a separate question from how big should government be. Squeeze another call in. Natalie in Port Coquitlam. Hi, Natalie. Go ahead. Hi. um, I'm a little confused with what you're you're seeing here. You don't pay income tax on the assessed value of a home while you own it, right? You you only pay taxes when you sell it so you're talking are you talking about um um raising property taxes before the sale and also i'm super confused how homes are being assessed like how could like this seems to me there's collusion and at a very corrupt level okay. between the real estate board and and the bc and the housing authorities because how can a home in maple ridge go from eight hundred thousand? To 1.7. I've seen it list homes listed now for 1.7, 1.9. Okay, in a thank, over one year. Doesn't thank you, make thank, any sense. Thank you, Natalie. We only have one minute left. Uh, let's give that. Let's do the assessment. Well, I'll yeah. just say quickly uh, what what I'm proposing is: if you own a very expensive house, you got to pay some tax. If it's through income tax, great. If not, you got to cough up a little extra. But I'll let Paul explain the issue with uh, current market value. Well, well, in, in, instead of doing that, in the interest of time, since we only have 30 seconds left, Paul, I'll just, you just get the last word here. Go ahead, whatever you want to say. Yeah, well, I, I, I guess I'm just going to leave it at this, which is, you know, we got to get homes built. Taxing people is, is not the answer. We can't expect homeowners to pay for things. And to address Tom's comment on, on, on what we should spend our money on, we need to get back to core services. Property taxation pays for fire, police, planning. It, it does not pay to build homes for people that need them. That is the responsibility of upper levels of government to which we pay our income okay. tax. So it's time to get back to core services and charge people for what they consume. And that's in line with Canadian value. All right, let's talk pet rules and condos. Now, some strata buildings have a no pets policy. Others will allow a condo resident to have a pet, sometimes with some some strict conditions. Now, check this one out in Surrey. Strata building there has a cat leash bylaw. You can have a cat, but if you take that cat outside, that cat better be on a leash. Now, one cat owner in this particular building breaking the rules here. The cat was running around outside without a leash on. This would cause some problems here. Cat was using some flower beds as a kitty litter box, apparently, outside. And the neighbors weren't too impressed over that. There was a battle erupted over this. There was a $50 fine. 
issued to the owner. Didn't really seem to solve the problem, though. It happened several other times. And then a $200 fine was issued over to the cat owner. They appealed it. The cat owners appealed this. It went all the way to BC's Civil Resolution Tribunal. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Tony Giaventu. Tony is the Executive Director, Condo Homeowners Association of BC, and I'm always pleased to have him here. Tony, thank you for coming on today. Uh, It's a pleasure, Mike. Oh, there's a long list of pet complaints that happen in condos. I bet. I bet this is very common. Do most condos, are they pet-free? Do most say no pets allowed, or do most allow some under conditions? Well, the standard bylaws that were actually developed with the Act, so they're the default set, um, permit one cat, one dog. So they do have this, so people do have the ability under the standard bylaws. But a lot of strata corporations have amended those bylaws. Um, Some of them say no pets. Some of them say two cats and two dogs. Some will say only one cat. You have to look closely, especially if you're buying. You need to look closely at what the pets, um, the limitations are under the bylaws before you get in. Okay, let's dig into this uh, cat leash issue here, Tony, and the way this went. I find this interesting that this ended up now at the BC Civil Resolution Tribunal. The owners of this cat were not happy with these fines that they were assessed by the Strata Council there because their cat was roaming around outside. They fought it all the way to this tribunal, and they won. So the tribunal uh, ruled that the cat owners were not given a reasonable opportunity to give their side of the complaint. Uh, Does that surprise you? No, actually, it's a it's a good decision, um, and it's unfortunate for all of the parties that the proper procedures weren't followed. The CRT are really good about upholding what the requirements of the Act are, and the requirements, if you look at them closely, um, are basically natural justice requirements. I have a right to be notified. You have to give me the opportunity to respond, repeal, dispute the claim, dispute the evidence, then you can make a decision, and then you have to notify me about what your decision is um, before you're going to impose penalties and what those are going to be. We get we get into this bad habit within strata corporations and property managers where it's just easy not to go through that whole cycle of notice and hearing and response and dispute and just slap fines onto people. And it's just not acceptable. And we've had a lot of fines at the tribunal level that have just simply been reversed because of this. Yes, and this uh, BC Civil Re- Resolution Tribunal ruled... And precisely along those lines, as you just described in this particular case, I'm just looking at the judgment here right now, and the the ruling was that the strata advised the uh, the the cat owners here about the complaints about their cat, and then levied the fines in the same letter. So it was almost like kind of summary justice. They said, "Here's a letter. Here are the complaints we've received, and here's the fine." So they they ruled yeah. they didn't they didn't have enough of a chance to present their side of it, right? Yeah, and that's and that's the error that I think a lot of strata corporations and property managers, frankly, uh, it, it's 
it's it's a convenience error more than anything because it doesn't take as much time to be able to just send the letter and um, uh, and wait for the time and the administration of the process to be able to you know apply some natural justice here. But but realistically, whether it's a fifty dollar fine, a five hundred dollar fine, or a hundred thousand dollar deductible because the strata says you caused an insurance claim. You have to follow the procedures closely um, because the only way you as the strata council and the corporation will be able to prove that you effectively notified and gave this person every opportunity. Um, And if you've done that correctly, you'll you'll see the other side of this. If you've done this correctly, the CRT will uphold the fines or will uphold the insurance deductibles and order their payment. Right. So it sounds like the... The Strata Council in this case has probably learned a difficult lesson here because the the ruling adjudicator here also writes that, so even though I found that the cat owners breached the bylaws, I find the fines are invalid. So it sounds like the cat owners here kind of beat the rap on almost like on a technicality. They did break the rules, but they threw the fines out here on appeal. So that sounds yeah, like a lot, of, a lot of wasted time and effort here. They did, but there's a little wake-up call for the cat owners because the cat owners um, are probably now going to be fairly vigilant. I doubt they're going to get a second chance, uh, yeah. and I suspect the Strata Council is going to be pretty vigilant with this. But, you know, we, it, it, pets in buildings, there's, there's a lot of pets in buildings, and, um, you know, they, not everyone is a pet fan. Not everyone is a dog fan. Um, some people have severe pet allergies. Uh, so, you know, we live together as communities, and we need to find some, some reasonable space where we can function but it's it's respectful also you if you're a pet owner you have to be responsible that your pets are not intruding on other people's space and that's that's another one of the principles of the standard bylaws of the act so you know there's a reasonable expectation of use and enjoyment without disruption of your strata lot or your common property okay i like the word you use there about reasonable like what kind of reasonable rules can we have here in in this particular strata one of the rules was okay if your cat is going to be around roaming around outside your cat must be on a leash do you think that is is reasonable because i i know i've i've known some cats who (laughs) last thing they would do is walk around on a leash they're just not into it (laughs) Yeah, the poor cat looks like they want to hang themselves when they're on a leash. Yeah, um, they they're, they're they're so despondent. But no, be realistically, we um, there are quite a few strata corporations that actually have a leash bylaw or a control bylaw for pets yeah. um, and for cats. Um, and you know, it, you know, a cat going from balcony to balcony um, when there are only glass dividers separating balconies um, and you know destroying other people's plants or property. That's not going to be so fair. Uh, I yeah. don't, uh, you know, the person who doesn't have a cat doesn't expect that type of behavior. A cat on a leash is realistically no different than a dog on a leash. Um, right. You know, it's having your pets under control at the time. And I think that's a reasonable expectation. All right. Do you live in a condo? Have you ever had a fight with neighbors over their pets? Do you ever have any neighbors in a strata building that have not exactly been irresponsible pet owners? If so, please call me right now. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Speaking to Tony Giaventu, Executive Director, Condo Homeowners Association. Marion on the line in White Rock. Hi, Marion. Go ahead, please. Hello. 
Yes, uh, we live in a condo and we've had some issues with pets, but you know, generally we can get it sorted out. My biggest issue is with the tribunal. We're ordinary Joe Blows that go on these councils uh, to try and run our buildings, and this uh, tribunal is just impossible to deal with. Anybody, we've had one guy who's brought hookers in here in the middle of the night. He's had uh, oh. a lot of cocktails uh, thrown in front of his unit, nearly put our building on fire. Police was called on him multiple times. He was fined multiple times times and he took us to the tribunal and he won because one oh. paper one paper wasn't fi- wasn't filed in the right order because you've got to file three sets of papers every time you've got a complaint every, and every every complaint is different every one you've got to file all these papers like we're not lawyers right yeah, and we right. and we pay and we pay uh, uh, what he called representation we have a manager we pay her 14,000 a year she missed this too so we had to end up paying him any fines that he did pay had to be paid back to him when he finally moved out. Okay. Thank God he moved out. Okay. So wait a second here now. Molotov cocktails were being thrown. What was going on there? Miriam. Why oh, were there Molotov? They knew him, you know, and they said he was, he was involved in crime. I don't know what sort of crime, oh. but all sorts of crime. And, and all the fines that went to him. The tribunal, just because one paper wasn't filed in the right order, they they wouldn't make him pay any of his fines. And these people yeah. know, it's just the criminals, they know how to use this. They know that if some you know, poor job laws that, really, that are not lawyers are trying to deal with this, you know? Yeah, yeah, okay. They, what know, a, they know how to go about it. They know how it works. What a nightmare. Marion, thank you for the call. Tony, what do you yeah, think of that? Well, I think that there is some credibility in what Marion said. It is technically demanding, and there are times when um, strata councils need to approach the tribunal and say, look, we have a very complicated situation. We have a complicated case. We need, you need to let us have legal representation on this because of the issues and the parties that we're dealing with. Um, and the um, tribunal does have the ability to grant that. I totally agree. Where it's volunteer strata councils, um, when it, it starts to involve criminal activity, um, it needs to go to a different jurisdiction. The strata corporation needs legal representation, and they probably need to take these activities into Supreme Court to be able to deal with them um, more aggressively. Um, the tribunal does not deal with criminal activity or or violations under the criminal code. Um, And that really compounds the problems that everybody's having. And she's not alone. There have been other strata corporations in similar situations. And the outcome of the tribunal was it it really wasn't the right venue um, and the right jurisdiction to take these kind of disputes. Um, It'd be nice if somebody at the tribunal would make that suggestion to people when they're doing that, though. Okay, keep phoning me on this if you have a condo or strata question. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Bruce in Surrey. Hi, Bruce. Go ahead. Hey, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. I live in a townhouse in Surrey, and next door to us, we have lots of green space in our townhouse area. Next door to us is a trailer court, and all the cats from the trailer park come in to hunt for birds and the rabbits in our area. Uh, is it, what can I do about that? Like, uh, what do I do about all these cats? I'm an animal lover, but yeah. uh, I, I don't like these cats coming in and killing birds on, on my property. Oh, yeah. Some of these cats are like stone-cold killers, too. I mean, they, oh, they, yeah. Kill, yeah. they kill a lot of birds. 
Tony, I mean, if they're not part of the strata, though, if they're on a different property, Tony, does he? What can he do about it? You know, they can't. There's not much they can do. It. I would probably be picking up the phone though and having a discussion with the um, advisor at the SPCA and see what their options are. Uh, there's not a lot of options. So, you know, for for cats. Um, for a lot of pets, um, instinctive behavior is something that's just simply going to happen. So, you know, it certainly is a bit of a problem um, when you have a lot of predatory cats in one area and neighborhood. Yeah. But there's not a lot the Strata Corporation can do about it. No, I think you'd have to turn to your local municipal animal control bylaw, Phone City, phone city Hall. Let's go to Annie on the line in Maple Ridge. Hi, Annie. Hi. I'm just going to turn the radio down here. Sure. I would like to ask a question about heat pumps. Are there having are, are condo owners complaining about heat pumps being installed around them? The noise, the vibration, and the emission of uh, water. Okay, good question, Tony. Uh, yeah, so the word heat pump is used to describe a variety of different types of devices from these small split units that are on walls mounted um, for cooling and air conditioning to large um, surface mounted systems on the ground that provide heating and cooling for units or retrofits. Um, townhouse complexes are one of the more eligible um, areas for heat pumps to be installed because they can replace very much a furnace so the heat pump itself is going to be much larger. It will produce some more noise um, than others. Uh, the condensation of moisture should easily be controllable, though. That comes from the heat pump itself. Um, every strata corporation manages this differently. My recommendation is that the strata corporation talk to one of the suppliers, manufacturers, and figure out a standard installation that works well for their community and then set that specification for everyone so that everyone is basically meeting the same standards, location, how they're installed, the type, the system, um, any kind okay. of noise abatement that can help. Do that for your building. It's the better way of dealing with it. Tony, thank you for coming on today. Thanks a lot, Mike. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.